Most gracious God, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the purposes that it accomplishes. We remember that it accomplishes all Your purposes, that Your Word does not return to You void. And so we thank You for it. We thank You that it is inerrant. We thank You that it is infallible. We remember that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness in order that we may be equipped for every good work. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word to do Your work in us, to prepare us for good works. And we pray, O Lord, for our children. We pray, O Lord, that the gospel seeds that fall on their ears today in due time would bear a rich harvest for the glory of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that You would help us to disciple our kids in order that they would come to know You and believe in You in Your time, by Your grace, through faith in Christ. O Lord, use this time to strengthen Your people and to glorify and exalt our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 13. No Gatorade endorsements, it's just the best thing to be drinking today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 13, verses 12 to 17 today. John chapter 13, verses 12 to 17. Church history reminds us that there are people out there throughout history uh, who do crazy, wild, weird things in the name of Christianity. Uh, one example is a man who was known by the name si- uh, Simeon the Stylite, or Simeon Stylites. Uh, he was known by both names. Simeon was a Christian in the early 5th century, born in the late 4th century, But he made a name for himself by living for 37 years on top of a 60-foot-tall pillar in the region of modern Syria. At the age of 16, he joined a monastery where he quickly uh, gained a reputation of being just kind of different, to, to, to put it nicely. Wikipedia puts it this way. It says, quote, From the first, he gave himself up to the practice of an austerity so extreme and to all appearance so extravagant that his brethren judged him to be unsuited to any form of community life, end quote. And so for this reason, because he was uh, kicked out, he, he left the monastery. And after leaving the monastery, he sought isolation from absolutely everybody. Uh, and thus he enclosed himself in a hut for a year and a half where he was known for doing all these weird things. Things like uh, not eating or drinking through all of the Lent season or uh, for standing uh, on his feet un- until he collapsed. Uh, things like that, just weird things. And people were noticing and thinking, wow, this guy really is different from the world. And so they started coming to him for spiritual advice for prayer and for counsel. And it got to the point where Simeon started remembering, oh, wait a minute, I want to be away from people. Um, I I need to separate myself from people because he felt like he was no longer able to be as devoted to being separated from the world now that all these people were coming out to see him. And so enter life on a pillar. He found this pillar among some ruins in, again, the modern region of Syria, and he built a very small platform on top of it. 
Uh, how would he get food? Uh, the, the legend is that young boys would bring him uh, bread and goat's milk, but he's known for never coming down from this pillar, which does raise a lot of questions for me about hygiene and things like that, but we don't need to go there. The, the point is that he started a movement by doing this. He started a movement that actually lasted for generations. Uh, these Christian monks who were known as ascetics uh, would build platforms and live up there instead of down in the world. Why would they do this? The ideal was that Simeon had effectively separated himself from the world by living on top of a pillar that was only big enough for himself. Now, biblically, I hope we can see that the problem here is very evident. It's, it's pretty clear. Uh, yeah, he, he did indeed separate himself from the world in a physical sense, but A, that doesn't mean that he necessarily separated himself from the world in a spiritual sense. Uh, and B, by doing this, he made himself isolated from the church community. He made himself a Lone Ranger kind of Christian where not only could he not be served by a local church, but just as importantly, he could not serve God's people at a local church or a local community of Christians. Now, in our day and age, we see a lot of Simeons, actually. A lot of people have continued this practice, although it's not from literal pillars. Rather, in our day and age, people have the internet. They have means by which they can participate or watch from afar without getting involved. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for watching from afar. Obviously, I would say that there is. After all, right now, high live stream people. We are live streaming. So, so there is a place for it. But what I'm saying is that it does not, doing the live stream or, or listening to podcasts or whatever, that does not replace actually going to a local church where you can be held accountable, where you can hold others accountable, where people can serve you, where you can serve others. All those things. God has gifted every one of His people with gifts to serve the body with. And you can't use those from afar. You just can't. See, in our time, it's just it's so easy to separate ourselves from other believers. It really is. It, even if we attend a church service in person, it's still easy. Even if you are actually going to church, it's still easy to separate yourself from a body of believers. It, it's, it's common and very easy for people to kind of treat church like going to the movies, where you go in, you find a seat, maybe you get some refreshments, you nod and you smile at others around us, you know, whom we don't really know all that much about, and we sit through the service as if we're a consumer, we're watching what's being presented as a consumer, and then as soon as the benediction's over, as soon as we're dismissed, we rush home and we're ready to get on with our, with our day. It shouldn't be like that. It should never, ever be like that. In the passage that we come to today in John, Jesus gives us a command which should demonstrate for us that the Christian life cannot operate, it cannot flourish in such a manner. This command is actually found in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 13, where Jesus says, if I then, the Lord and the Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should 
also do as I did to you. Now, if you're thinking, oh no, uh, please just let me take care of washing my own feet. Don't worry, I'm right there with you. Nobody's going to be washing anybody's feet today. But Jesus wasn't actually instructing us to literally wash each other's feet, I don't think. I think He's calling us to something much deeper. He's calling us to something much more significant. He's calling us to something actually much more messy than washing feet. After all, remember when Jesus, in Jesus' day, when he washed their feet, they wore sandals and they walked on dirt roads. Today, if you're washing somebody's feet, they're pretty clean. But just as Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, and he did so for the same reason he came down from, from heaven, he did so for, for his own, for the love of his own, there are multiple reasons here that he did this. He also did it to serve as an example for us to follow. Now, what we know in the text is that his hour has come, and Jesus is giving his disciples final instructions, you might say. But it started by him demonstrating his love for his own by washing their feet. But he didn't wash their feet simply for the sake of washing their feet. It was an object lesson. First and foremost, uh, about our need to be cleansed regularly by Christ. But it was more than that. It was an example for us to follow, as we'll see in the passage that we find ourselves in today. So the point of the passage that we'll be in today, John chapter 13, verses 12 to 17, the point of our passage is that just as Jesus has humbly loved and served us, we too must humbly love and serve one another. Now later on in this chapter, Jesus is going to say, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By what? Not by living your lives off you know, by yourselves in your homes, completely separated from each other, but you know, occasionally hanging out on a Zoom call. Not by living on top of your own little pillars somewhere where nobody can get to you, but maybe somebody can bring you some food. No, he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And one of the things we need to know about biblical love is that love acts. Love always acts. It doesn't just remain in isolation. It carries out in our lives in some way. So, Jesus, having warned Peter that not all the disciples were clean because he knew that Judas was about to betray him, he now turns to all the disciples to instruct them in what he had just demonstrated for them by washing their feet. So let's start with verses 12 to 15. John chapter 13, verses 12 to 15. John writes, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So when Jesus asks them, Do you know what I have done for you or to you? The disciples could have answered that a number of ways. They could have answered it very literally. They could have said, uh, yeah, you just followed the cultural custom of washing our feet. But that's not obviously what Jesus wanted to hear. They could have given him a very theological answer. They could have said, yes, Jesus, by washing our feet, you've illustrated that salvation requires that we be washed by your atoning blood, which 
uh, you'll shed tomorrow when you're crucified in order to reconcile all who believe in you to God. And that would have been true. It would have been right. After all, Jesus had told Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part. That is no fellowship with me. But again, that wasn't exactly where Jesus was trying to go here. Actually, we aren't told that the disciples said anything. So it seems very likely that they didn't say anything, although it's possible that they might have said something, and it's not recorded. But I have no doubt that they were probably sitting there very, very confused because it was unheard of for the master to wash the feet of his servants in the ancient world. So he's already given us the theological lesson, but a theological lesson that doesn't lead to action is just vain knowledge. Let me say that again. A theological lesson, theological knowledge that doesn't lead to action is vain. And so Jesus gives us the full meaning, the full lesson by saying this. He says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus washing the feet of His disciples was an example for His disciples. And that includes you. And that includes me. And that includes everybody who is a Christian. Everybody who savingly believes in Jesus. It's an example for all of us through the ages to follow. Now, just to set the record straight, that doesn't mean, I don't think, that we are supposed to literally be washing each other's feet. Um, It's not like a third sacrament. You know, the sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, And if you go to some churches, they treat washing feet as if that's a third sacrament as well. Uh, But I don't think that's the way to see it. Sadly, there are churches throughout history and even in the world today that have taken it this way. I actually attended a church that did this when I was on a mission in Moldova back in 2005. Uh, we washed each other's feet. That was, a, a, that was the major part of the service. It took a long time. Um, but the thing is, if you know that somebody's going to be handling your feet, aren't you going to scrub them clean before you get here? <laughs> Aren't you going to make sure that your nails are are trimmed and and that everything looks good? Uh, No, that isn't what Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus saying? What Jesus means is that we should love and serve one another humbly with the same humble love that Jesus has served us with. The same love, the same sacrificial love humility that Jesus has demonstrated toward His disciples. In fact, that He has exemplified by washing their feet. In Peter's words, from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that's what Jesus means. And I'd say that there are at least four ways that we should see this. First of all, washing one another's feet is a picture of a ministry of forgiveness toward one another. We saw that by washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus was illustrating the need to come to Him regularly for the forgiveness of sins. Not for the sake of getting saved again, by the way, just to make the record clear. You can only be saved once, and that salvation will continue until its completion in glory. The saints will persevere because God's grace will persevere. 
But the, but, but the point is uh, that Jesus was making by washing their feet is the need to restore our fellowship with God in our walk with Him by the cleansing of sins. The regular confession of sin. And then we read this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Has somebody ever wronged you as a Christian, a fellow brother or sister, ever wronged you in some way? I mean, if, if they haven't, congratulations, that's really rare. But forgive them. Forgive them. That, that simply means that you don't hold it against them and you're going to let God deal with them about it. It doesn't mean to forget, necessarily. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, that you have to act as if nothing has happened. For example, somebody who is raped, they don't need to act like nothing has happened. But at the same time, it's not good for that person to carry bitterness through life. They need to trust that God is going to deal with that person. So forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship is necessarily completely reconciled. No, that involves repentance on the party that sinned against the other but forgiving those who have sinned against us is one way of proverbially washing one another's feet. I've seen many Christians, particularly in Reformed circles, who have argued that we don't have to forgive someone until they ask for forgiveness and until they repent. Can you imagine if that was the way that it worked with God? Because we are constantly sinning against Him. We are constantly sinning against Him. When was the last time you loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength? You never have. You never have. Not for one full second combined in your entire life have you loved God perfectly. The way that He demands. The way that He is worthy of. Not for one second. Only Jesus loved God that way. And you have never, ever come even close to loving God with the perfect love that Jesus did. So you are constantly, constantly sinning against God. Constantly. Remember that the next time somebody sins against you. Remember that. And they will. It'll happen. Give it time. Somebody will sin against you. And in that moment, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that no matter how bad, no matter how malicious, no matter how evil their sin against you was, it was nothing compared to your own sin against God. And yet, He has freely and completely forgiven you. You must forgive others that way. In the Lord's Prayer, one of the things we say is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do you want God to forgive you freely and completely? I, I hope you do. Uh, and if you want God to forgive you that way, then you have to exercise that type of forgiveness toward others. So that's one way of washing one another's feet, is forgiving one another. Secondly, washing one another's feet is a picture of a ministry of cleansing one another with the Word. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, where he's referring to the way that Christ cleansed the church by the washing of water with the Word. When we sing the Word to one another, 
when we preach the Word to one another, when we pray the Word to one another, we are serving one another by proverbially brushing and scrubbing off the dirtiness of the world that we accumulate, that we all accumulate on the journey. Now sometimes what this means is going to somebody who is in willful and deliberate sin and trying to bring them back into fellowship with God and with the church through repentance. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, you don't go with a spirit of vindiction. You don't go with a spirit of vengeance. You go with a spirit of gentleness. Note that that's the way that this is to be done. A spirit of gentleness. Your goal is not to break the other person in half with conviction. Leave the conviction up to God. Your goal is simply to walk the person through the process of restoring fellowship with God through the confession and repentance of sin so that they can also be restored to fellowship with God's people. So sometimes... This means confronting or addressing sin that is plaguing somebody's life or, somebody that, uh, or uh, sin that somebody is guilty of. But more often, we should see this and we should do this, <clears throat> excuse me, we should do this simply to encourage one another and to build one another up in love. But either way, we should use the word to cleanse one another, not to beat one another down. Third, Washing one another's feet is a picture of a ministry of refreshment. In his second letter to uh, Timothy, Paul wrote this. He said, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Onesiphorus apparently visited Paul in prison and encouraged Paul in his circumstances where he was probably feeling pretty isolated. He was probably feeling pretty alone and pretty depressed. So the church in Rome, Paul urged them to, uh, to join him in praying that he could come and join them in person. And he tells us why in Romans chapter 16, verse 32. He says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Friends, when you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, it should be a refreshing experience for you and for them as you minister to one another and experience fellowship with one another. It's refreshing the same way that if you're breathing hot, humid air, it sure would feel good to get a whiff of cool air. Maybe some air conditioning or something like that, which you can all right now at this moment relate to. That would be refreshing. It should be the same way when we are having fellowship with one another. Washing one another's feet is a ministry of forgiveness. It's a ministry of cleansing. It's a ministry of refreshment. Fourth, and finally, washing one another's feet is a picture of a ministry of humble, loving service in general. One of the, uh, one of the questions I asked you guys last week was, what ways of serving do you believe are below you? And if I'm being honest, if there was anything that came to mind in, in your mind, if there was anything that you could think of when I asked that question, I want to encourage you to actually do it, whatever it may be. Whatever you believe is below you, do it. Do it, whatever it would be. Would you do it for Jesus if He were to show up 
and ask you face to face to do whatever that might be? And I would hope that your answer would be, of course I would do it if Jesus personally asked me, but if you would do it for Him, wouldn't you also do it for His bride as a way of honoring Him? Don't serve for the sake of gaining applause or approval. Don't uh, serve for the sake of gaining the respect of other people. Uh, Serve for the sake of Jesus. Period. Serve for the sake of the One who loved the saints that you're surrounded by enough that He willfully laid down His life for them. If He laid down His life for them, how can I, or how can you, or how can anyone say I won't lay down my pride for them? The love of Jesus should compel us. The love of Jesus should constrain us to love Humbly love and serve His sheep. And when I say the love of Jesus should compel us and constrain us, I mean, first of all, His love for us, His love for us should compel us. His love for us should constrain us to obedience. But I also mean, secondly, our love for Him. Our love for Him. Our love for Jesus should compel us. Our love for Jesus should constrain us to humbly love and serve the people that He died for. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. What we need to understand is that He's both of those things. He's teacher and Lord. He's Lord and teacher. And one of the primary ways that we can demonstrate that we have received Him as Lord is to receive Him also as our teacher. Jesus taught us about the right attitude to have and how that attitude translates into action. He says, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That is, we should follow in the example that He set of acting on this love. An example of sacrificial, loving, humble service unto others. And this isn't optional for us. This isn't optional. It's given as a command. Over the course of the last year, Many churches in our nation and in nations abroad closed down their doors. Uh, they, they closed their doors due to COVID. And for a few weeks, actually, we did too. We were told that within a few weeks, millions of people were going to be dead. Um, you know, and what I did is, you know, what we did is I would come here with uh, Jamie, who did video, and Alex uh, doing video, and Don doing the soundboard, and Maddie, who was singing a song, and we'd do a live stream that was supposed to be a substitute for meeting in person. But just in case you don't remember, it was very obvious that that was not a substitute for anything. That was absolutely not the same as actually meeting as a congregation. It was no substitute. And for the churches that remained closed while we resumed gathering, it was still no substitute. Even though we were being told by just about everybody that that meeting on a Zoom chat was really good enough. And it was basically the same. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Because it is impossible to experience the kind of fellowship on Zoom or Skype or you know, whatever platform that Christ calls us to have with one another. We aren't robots. We have emotions. We need to be hugged. We need eye contact. We need to see people smile. 
In the New Testament, you find 59 one another commands. And all of these commands must be carried out in person. They really can't be carried out virtually or, or long distance. They actually require regular fellowship in person. We must gather in person to be obedient to these 59 one another commands, if nothing else. But really, the, the same principle has applied all along. I mean, think about it. What, what's wrong with somebody deciding that they can just kind of do their own thing on Sunday mornings? They can worship God however they want. And they can go to the lake and have church by themselves out there. What, what's wrong with that? Uh, the problem is that you, you can't do that and be obedient to those 59 one another commands that are given to us in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't stay home if you're sick. You probably should. It doesn't mean that you can't take vacations. That's, that's an okay thing too. The whole thing boils down to this. Why? What is your motivation? Why are you not able to gather? Because if we're able to, we absolutely should. We're instructed to serve one another sacrificially, humbly, lovingly, and in order to do that, we must gather in person. It's really an, an issue of attitude and motivation. And Jesus addresses that in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. The idea that, <clears throat> that we don't need to be humble or sacrificial or loving toward one another gets completely shut down, completely destroyed by one verse here. Verse 16. The idea that we can just avoid meeting in person even though it means neglecting the command to serve one another is dealt an absolutely fatal, fatal blow here. Because really what that boils down to is a claim that you can do, you can avoid doing what Jesus did. You don't have to follow His example. So the question is then, are you greater than your Master? Are you greater than Jesus? Uh, That's one of those questions that should draw nothing but silence and maybe even at a dropped gaze. Are you greater than Christ? The answer, of course, is absolutely not. And of course, there's nothing that you can say or do to argue against that argument. The obvious answer is, of course I'm not greater than Christ. And being that that's the case, the obvious conclusion is, well, then we ought to serve one another as Christ has served us. As Richard Phillips notes in his commentary, it will be impossible for us to follow Christ's example unless we are watching for one another's needs. End quote. And how are you going to do that effectively over Zoom or Skype? How are you going to do that if you're not in the presence of church family regularly? 
Or what about the case where church is just something that you do? Where, where church is just, it's a box that you check, you know, every week. You come in, you do what you're supposed to do. But the second you're given the closing benediction, your first thought is always, okay, I've got to get out of here as quickly as possible and get on with my day. I've got stuff to do. More important stuff to do. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. Ministering to the spiritual needs of others requires time. An investment of time. And that, the, the, the ministry of, of spiritual needs, is the top priority of the church. Our purpose is not to conquer the world for Jesus through social action or by meeting nothing but material, physical needs. No, Jesus said, to the disciples back in verse 10 here in chapter 13. He said, you are clean. He was referring to the atoning sacrifice that He was to make on their behalf. And our job, our mission, our purpose in this world, our purpose for even existing is to proclaim the glory of Christ and the necessity of having His atoning sacrifice applied to every heart. To let everybody know that without having that applied to them, they are lost. They have no part with Jesus. They have no fellowship with Jesus. And without fellowship with Jesus, they will go to hell. This is our purpose as a church. Ministering to spiritual needs. First and foremost. And that brings us to the problem with the social justice movement. The the problem with the social justice movement is that it's trying to address physical needs first and foremost rather than spiritual needs. It's trying to address symptoms without addressing the cause. The cause is spiritual. So you have to get to that first. It's trying to change the world through social action. But the way, friends, the way that God changes people is not through social action. It's through hearing the Gospel. It's through hearing the Gospel. He changes the, heart, the, the, the sinner's heart through the preaching of the Gospel and the conversion of sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our job is not to change the world. It's to preach the Gospel and allow God to do His work through that. Through the means which He has ordained and instructed. Now I want you to see that this is what it means to be the church. What it means to belong to a church. And the thing for us to see here in verse 17 is that being the church, by serving the church, is its own reward. Being the church, by serving the church, is its own reward. Do you see that in verse 17? Being the church, serving one another, loving one another humbly, sacrificing for one another, that is its own reward. Jesus says, if you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. Notice that it doesn't just stop with knowing. It doesn't just stop with intellect, with with head knowledge. Knowing is great. Intellectual head knowledge, that that stuff is very, very important. Your heart can't know something unless it goes through your ears, right? Knowing is very important. You should be filling your mind with theological truth and with theological knowledge and understanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you need to do that with the understanding that it's not an end unto itself. Jesus doesn't say you're blessed if you know these things and that's it. He says you're blessed if you do them. If you do them. 
If you take this knowledge, this theological, intellectual knowledge, this attitude of humility and loving kindness and forgiveness and patience toward one another, if you take all this together and if you put it into action, you're blessed. Actions speak louder than words and actions reveal more than intellectual knowledge does. Who can dispute the fact that the world is such a depressing place, especially when you see it becoming darker and darker, more and more evil as the world is in our time? But Jesus is saying that you have the, the, the opportunity to experience the happiness, the joy of being blessed by loving and serving His people. See, the natural man, the natural man is going to say that it's a blessed thing to be selfish and to gain as much as you can for yourself, to be self-focused, to be self-centered. But that's completely wrong. We hear people talking about how people just need to love themselves more and love themselves better. And when I hear somebody say that, I think to myself, are you kidding? You have got to be kidding me. The problem is not that we don't love each other enough. (laughs) The problem is that we don't love our, uh, that, we, that we think too highly of ourselves. The problem is not that we're too humble. The problem is that we're too proud. Love for self isn't the solution. Love for self is the problem. The solution is humble service. Carrying out the 59 one another commands with a spirit of love and gentleness and compassion and humility toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, when the natural man thinks about this, he's more likely to think that Jesus is instructing us to to live a life of absolute misery, to live a life of, of toil, like it's a list of chores that Jesus has given us. But that's not at all what this is. This is the key to finding the joy of blessing and happiness. Being self-focused doesn't lead to blessing. Focusing on loving and serving others in the humble spirit of Christ, that's where the blessing is found. That's the key to true happiness, true joy in life. Now, it's entirely possible for a person to, to live their life in pursuit of all the neat things of this world, and to devote himself or to devote herself to a selfish life of pursuing this thing or or that thing or this title or that title. But what isn't possible is to experience this blessing that Jesus is promising here by living purely for ourselves. Think about the disciples. Think about how radically their lives were changed. They went from being self-focused, just like everybody else, to giving their lives away in service to others, and they were blessed. This is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. Listen to how Luke, who's the author of Acts, describes this blessed life in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. He writes this, he says, they, that is the, the first century church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and, all, and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. 
day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their devotion to the Lord on the surface would have looked, on a very practical level, it would have looked like devotion to one another. But what it really was, was devotion to the Lord. And that's the way it played out, through devotion and service to one another. If somebody had a need, somebody else in the church body provided, so that nobody had any needs. They were all being met within the context of the local church, which shows us the the humble service that they had toward one another. They practiced toward one another. They graciously loved one another the way that Christ had loved them. And thus they served one another. They they ministered continually, regularly to one another. And and do you think they felt blessed? Absolutely. No, No question about it. And their blessing was then multiplied when God added to their number. Think about it. Why would God add to their number if they weren't loving and humbly loving and serving one another the way that they should and doing it well? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy in life? There are a few things that you need to know. The first thing you need to know is that Jesus is our Lord. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, it has to start with that. Jesus is Lord. This is the foundation of a life of blessing. That's where it has to start. That's the foundation. If you don't have this as the foundation of your entire life, you're building on sinking sand. Secondly, if Jesus is your Lord, you also need to know that He is your teacher. He's not just your Lord. He's not just your Savior. He's also your teacher. Don't claim that He's your Lord if He's not your teacher. It's easy to to cry out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, but actually obeying Him, actually following His commands in joyful obedience and submission to one another, that takes action. It takes intentionality. We must strive to follow His example as our teacher. We must strive to do as He did, to walk as He walked, to love as He loved, and to serve as He served. As Jonathan Edwards once noted, quote, If you long to be more like Christ, then act like Him and walk as He walked. End quote. And friends, the entire Christian life is about becoming more and more like Jesus. That starts with believing in Him as Lord and Teacher. Not only seeing Him as the One who saves us, but as the One who teaches us. The One who instructs us in the way that we should go and the attitude that we should have as we go. Third, if you want this blessing that Jesus is talking about, if you want to be happy in life, you must know that Jesus humbled Himself as a servant. Paul writes of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8. to He says, Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in, the, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if he instructs us in the way that we should go, and if he's our teacher showing us the way we should go, Shouldn't this tell us something? Keep in mind that Paul is telling us this. He's writing that because he's encouraging believers to follow Jesus and Jesus' example of being humble and putting the needs of others before one's own self. Fourth, you must see that Christians are not greater than the Master. We're not greater than Christ. A servant, or in our translation, uh, it says slave, which I think is probably a better translation of the Greek word since it implies ownership, unlike the word servant. But a servant or a slave is not greater than their master. If serving his sheep with the lowest possible task wasn't below Jesus, then nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, is below me or below you. It's not too degrading. It's not too menial for any of us to act as though some acts of of service toward one another are too low or too degrading or too menial is to claim to be greater than Christ. Don't go there. Don't do that. And if you do, repent. Fifth, and finally, understand and embrace the reality. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, embrace the reality that Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, who showed grace and kindness and compassion to you, and who has thereby redeemed you and reconciled you to God, Jesus has called you to serve His sheep humbly, sacrificially, lovingly, If you are in Christ, you are a missionary to His sheep, to serve His sheep and minister to His sheep and to the world. Just as Jesus has loved us and just as Jesus has served us, we too must love and serve one another. Doing so is its own reward. What's going to prevent you from experiencing this blessing that he's talking about? Selfishness. Selfishness will. So follow Christ's example. Lay aside your pride and anything that will get in the way of you grasping this promise of blessing that Jesus is giving here in this passage. Act on what you know. Know truth. Absolutely. Study truth. Know truth but act on it. Don't let it puff you up with pride. Keep yourself humble so that you will act on it and you will find that that purpose and that blessing, that happiness, they're yours. True happiness starts by believing in Jesus and by being served by Him, being cleansed from sin, being cleansed from unrighteousness through His atoning sacrifice. And true happiness is made complete And it's fully found by following in His footsteps as a humble servant. In this way, friends, you will be blessed. You will be grown in Christ's likeness. And above all, 
Christ will be glorified in your life. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank You for the humility of Christ, for His demonstration of humble love in condescending from His throne in heaven, taking on flesh, humbling Himself even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, teach us from this example. Help us, O Lord, in our fight against our own tendencies to be prideful, to think that there are things that are below us, to think that we're more worthy of honor and esteem among men. O Lord, teach us to go to war against those prideful inclinations in our hearts in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to love and to serve one another with the same attitude that Christ loved and served us with. We thank You, O Lord, for the promise that in doing so, we will find happiness, blessing, purpose, and all of this for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.